Hey everybody, welcome back to Up The Vibe. And today I have the pleasure of speaking to Paul Wallace, who served as a church doctor and theological educator, but has since become a researcher, speaker, and best-selling author of the Eden series, which probes ancestral narratives and human origins. He also has many interviews and documentaries on the Paul Wallace YouTube channel and the Fifth Kind TV. Hi Paul, how are you doing? Good day Joe, I'm fantastic, thanks. Thank you for having me on your show. No, it's, it's a great pleasure and uh, it's amazing that we've managed to sort this out with the time difference and everything. <laughs> Good to have it's you on. It's a challenge. Yeah. So can you start by introducing yourself and also talking a bit about the Eden series itself? Sure. Well, people know me for being a writer and presenter in the field of paleocontact. And paleocontact is the theory that our ancestors in the deep past had contact with other civilizations, extraterrestrial civilizations. Mm -hmm. And my route into that somewhat surprises a lot of people because it is from out of the world of ministry. I was 33 years in church-based ministry as a church doctor, theological educator, archdeacon for the Anglican church in Australia. That's one down from a bishop. It's a kind of a troubleshooting mm -hmm. role, but it was the middle role the theological educator role led me into this world of paleocontact. And that's because my main topic was, I had two really, the history of Christian thought and hermeneutics. And hermeneutics means the principles of interpreting ancient texts. And so I would teach pastors source criticism. And that's where you approach any text and you ask, where has this come from? Does it differ to the original form? And if so, how does it differ? And if so, why? And you do form criticism. What kind of literature is this in the first place? How should we be handling it? And then you always ask the fundamental linguistic questions. What do the words mean? And it was simply using those tools and applying them to certain anomalies in the stories we generally tell from out of the Bible that I realized there are some really key translation issues which if you go to the root meanings of these keywords reveals a totally different story hidden in plain sight of the familiar biblical texts a totally different explanation of human origins and our place in the universe and so that was the rabbit hole i went down from mm -hmm. the start point of biblical translation to realizing there is this other narrative and it's not a random one it's not something that only appears when you make a different translation choice because it lines up in parallel with source narratives from out of ancient Sumeria, Babylonia, Arcadia, Assyria, and ancestral narratives all around the world, all resounding with the same notes that indicate our ancestors did indeed have contact in the deep past, and they've all curated stories to maintain the memory of it. And uh, what drove you to? do the Eden, Eden series, what kind of spurred you on? Well, in the main, it was just following the white rabbit of that data as I did mm -hmm. that study, but I'd been provoked somewhat into doing it because a massive gauntlet was thrown down by the Roman Catholic Church in 2009, when Pope Benedict XVI, the most conservative Pope in my lifetime, called upon the Pontifical Academy of Sciences to hold what they called a colloquium. So this was a symposium of top scholars, top theologians to discuss, and they made it public what they were discussing, 
the theological implications of contact with other civilizations. Mm -hmm. Well, when they published that, I could have fallen off my seat because it was only 400 years ago, the same institution was burning people alive for merely suggesting there might yeah. be intelligent life on other planets, let alone us being in contact with them. And following the colloquium, we heard from very senior spokespeople for the Curia saying there's no theological issue here. A populated universe simply means the creator has been busier than we were aware. We should be ready to embrace a brother or sister alien. This was the language they used. And then Reverend Dr. Guy Consolmagno, who was the chief astronomer for the um, Vatican Observatory, said we shouldn't be surprised to make contact with other civilizations because after all, he said they are in the Bible. They're in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And when he said that, it really was a challenge to believers, certainly to theologians around the world, to go back to the Bible and test that. Are there aliens in the Bible? And when I heard that, I thought, could I really have missed something as glaring as aliens in the Bible? So it was on my agenda that when I had the time, I was going to go back and check that out. I had a notion there may be an anomalous entity here and there washing around in the text of the Bible. But what I found through my translation work absolutely blew me away. It was like Neo taking the red pill in the Matrix. <laughs> it opened up a completely different world. Sure. And there's no way you can turn back. Yeah, I, I've been through a similar journey in the last few years. It's, uh, it is taking the red pill. I think it's a good, good analogy. Um, but I think if I'm right in saying you actually had a, an accident with uh, in a Frisbee accident or something that caused you to have a bit of time to do a bit more research. Is that right? Yes, that's right. In Escaping from Eden, which is the first in the Eden series, I talk about this ultimate Frisbee injury <laughs> where I was in, in a portable traction device for weeks on end. And it gave me the opportunity of time to study. Mm -hmm. Now, between you and me, don't tell anybody, <laughs> I I used that, I really was injured in an ultimate Frisbee accident, but I used that motif as kind of a metaphor for all the time that the universe has gifted with me at different moments to drill down into these questions that had caught my attention. And it really was a gift because if I say to other priests or pastors, people who've studied theology, are you aware that the biblical stories, many of which we tell as stories of God, are based on the Mesopotamian stories. They'll often say, oh, yes, I remember that from my training. And are you aware that the Mesopotamian stories are not stories about God? They're stories about other entities, sky people. Yes, I think I remember that. And would it be fair to say that the modern word for sky people is extraterrestrial? Well, I suppose you could say that. And what are the implications of our God stories being based on our ancestors' stories of ETs? Well, I haven't really put much thought to it, is usually the last answer. And haven't put much thought to it because most pastors, priests are as overscheduled as anybody else. And even if they spot these anomalies or notice these possibilities, they just don't have the time and the luxury to explore them especially when there's a certain pressure on most pastors and priests to get their head together once again by Sunday morning so they can preach a sermon which rehearses the familiar stories that the congregation expects mm -hmm. to hear. Mm -hmm. I was very fortunate to be in between congregations where I wasn't under that pressure, where I could just follow the data, 
think through the implications, have the time to join the dots. So it was a gift to me because it was long overdue that I should sit down with these texts and ask what is really going on? Because mm -hmm. the anomalies are obvious. A child can point them out reading through the book of Genesis. Mm -hmm. And it, it was to my shame, really. It took me so many years and so many decades to do the work and recognize the other story. Do you think um, to a certain extent, <clears throat> maybe the material that you wrote or the transition that you went through was somehow channeled or influenced from a from another presence, another ETIS self potentially? Well, yes, <clears throat> people do ask me that. And I, I wondered that because it was a really intense period of unlearning, reframing, relearning, and it was an accelerated period of, of study and, mm. and change. Looking back, I can see some things that uh, move me into this phase of study and change. And I think significantly, I was in between jobs. So I was depressurizing from a, a really demanding assignment. And I was taking a few months to prioritize my health, just to get my peace back, get my health up to 100%. And so I was taking time to do a lot of grounding, earthing, sunning, <laughs> deep breathing, getting out into the bush, uh, walking alone in the forest, and just reconnecting with the environment around me. And I think that was very significant to what followed, the study that followed and the writing that followed. It was kind of a recalibration. Now that I've written Escaping, The Scars of Eden, and Echoes of Eden, in Echoes of Eden, I've What's happened is I've paid more attention to the world's ancestral narratives and they interweave the themes of paleo contact with higher human potential, higher cognitive abilities. And their notion of contact is a little bit more diverse than, I mean, if I say a close encounter, we straight away think of, ah, yes, flying saucer lands, small gray gets out and has a conversation. <laughs> But ancestral narratives do talk about that kind of contact, but they also talk about contact that you could miss, where you're getting these nudges, thoughts, synchronicities, where you're getting help mm -hmm. from an invisible cloud of helpers. That's sort of the indigenous worldview. If you sit down with a traditional healer, that's the world they'll describe to you. They will say, Joe, when you come for healing, I can see a little cloud of invisible helpers with you. They're the spirits, they're the ancestral spirits, and they're talking to me about you all around the world. That's the kind of thought world that the curators of indigenous knowledge live in. Now I look back on that period and think, yes, I think I had my invisible support cloud helping me <laughs> through the unlearning, the study, yeah. the relearning, the writing because there were so many synchronicities that made it happen. The middle of the three, The Scars of Eden, it almost felt like the book was writing itself because so mm -hmm. many of these synchronicities were, were following one from the other and enabling me to delve into that territory. So the short version of that answer is yes. <laughs> For sure. Uh, you've mentioned on your YouTube channel that um, you're experimenting to a certain extent with uh, trying to attain higher cognitive abilities. I just wondered how you're trying to achieve that and how that's going. 
Well, I think trying to achieve is probably the wrong way to think about it because our ancestors, ancestors say that in the past, in our deep ancestry, we all had <clears throat> higher cognitive abilities. If you go to the Popol Vuh, for instance, which mm -hmm. is the book representing the Mayan uh, uh, stories of origins, the Mayan cosmology, they speak about our ancestors having vision that is not limited in the way human vision is today. And if you just have a think through what that might mean, our vision is limited by surfaces. We can't see into things. We can't see mm -hmm. through things and behind things. It's limited by distance. We can't see beyond the horizon. We can't see into deep space. It's limited by time. We can only see the present. We can't see the past. We can't see the future. Mm -hmm limited by frequency. We can only see this spectrum of radio waves. A cat can see this, a dog can see this. Mm. What would it mean if those limits were removed as the Mayan story says they were? Well, suddenly you've got, you can see great distances, you've got remote viewing, you can see through things, you've got X-ray vision, mm -hmm. you can see the future, you've got precognition. And so the hint is there that those were the abilities that our ancestors were more fluent in. Now, most of us, I think if you sat down with any group of friends or any family circle and said, have you ever had a glimpse of remote viewing or a glimpse of um, precognition or a glimpse of telepathic connection? Everyone has a story where they've had a flash of one of those things. And when you have those experiences, it always raises the question, could I do this more? Could I nurture this? And our mystical and shamanic traditions all around the world say, yes, absolutely you can. We all have these abilities latent in our brains. Mm -hmm. uh, we can all nurture them. We can all harness them. And it's not a matter of achieving them. It's a matter of maximizing your health, your physical health, emotional health, mental health. And then there are certain protocols that shamanic traditions maintain to help you pay attention to the information that's flowing to you. Hmm. So it's kind of that way around. Yeah, I, I sometimes think of it as um, tuning your relationship to the universe a bit of trying to um, yes. manifest how and how you view the universe and, and manifest what you want in a way and, and be able to take the right path <laughs> in life. Sometimes exactly. it is, uh, it's something that's, uh, that you develop and mature into. This idea that we have those abilities latent, waiting to be engaged and nurtured, is not just in ancient mythology and ancestral story. Mm -hmm. It's in contemporary science. If you go into the field of neuroscience, you will find top world-class peer-reviewed scientists who study a phenomenon called acquired savant syndrome. And that's the phenomenon where your higher cognitive abilities switch on by accident. So a person has a, a brain injury, a stroke, has an accident, a blow to the head, comes out of a coma, and all of a sudden they can speak a language they couldn't speak before. This is yeah. a real world phenomenon. Or they play yeah. an instrument they couldn't play before. Or they're suddenly geniuses in higher physics or higher mathematics. And these scientists ask the obvious questions, what are higher cognitive abilities doing in our brains in the off position in the first place? Mm -hmm. Why are there inhibition systems in our brains to stop them from operating? 
what is the logic of an accident knocking them on? I mean, an injury should decrease your ability, not increase it. And mm. then the follow-on question, can we switch these things on without a brain injury, without an accident? So this is all part of the public conversation of credentialed neuroscientists. And if they ask that question of traditional shamanic healers, they will say, yes, we all have it. Yes, it's all in our potential. And yes, we can re-engage it. Yes, I, I can definitely see a, a path um, in the future where more and more people are going to be uh, developing their abilities more and more. I think it's, that's, that's the way we are evolving, I guess, as, uh, as humanity. And it's exciting times. So yeah. yeah, I think so. Yeah, exciting. Um, just turning back to your time in the church, um, how did someone so involved in the church become aware of the so-called her heretic uh, scriptures and um what yeah what sort of brought them these things to to your to your plate well i think discovering um plato who uh, we all have to study if 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 we train to be priests and pastors and do a theology degree you have to read plato Mm-hmm. because Plato really represents the thought world in which the writers for Jesus lived. That was sort of their start point in terms of their worldview. And many of the early church fathers were huge fans of Plato. They would quote Plato and the Apostle Paul alongside each other, believing they were doing the Apostle Paul um, a favor of equating him with the great Plato. And this reminded me that early church fathers including um, Marcion, uh, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, taught the kind of things I'm teaching in the Eden series. They believed in God, they were followers of Jesus, and they also believed in paleo contact. Mm. More than that, they believed that in the history of the human race, there were moments of intervention when more advanced species turned up on the planet and genetically modified our ancestors to upgrade us mm -hmm. to be more conscious and more intelligent. And I was really intrigued to rediscover that in Plato because I'd first come across that idea from Eric von Daniken mm -hmm. when I was 11 years old and I read Chariots of the Gods. And I felt he had accurately put his finger on a problem we have in explaining ourselves mm -hmm. uh, as homo sapiens on planet Earth. How is it that we are the top species here when in some ways we seem a little ill-adapted to the planet? I mean, all the other animals can survive in the wild. I don't know how you would do, Joe, but if I was uh, dropped naked and alone in the wilderness, I think after three nights and three days, I'd either be very sick, hospitalized, or I'd have passed away. Yeah, and what was that the stag do about? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the only reason that we're the top species here is because of our higher consciousness, our higher intelligence, because of our technology, because we can build a fire, we can build a structure, we can build a weapon. So the question then comes, where did the higher consciousness and the higher intelligence come from? Why is there such a margin between us and the other animals? And when I was growing up, age 11, when I found Eric von Daniken, I, I looked at what the alternatives were. My church school had said, well, we're the top species because we're God's special creation. 
well, that's great, but how come it's pretty obvious with some kind of primate? Special creation, we're one of the animals. Mm -hmm. so why are we so similar? Or if you went to the scientific explanation of, of gradual evolution, there is this huge leap forward that gets you to Homo sapiens. How did that happen? Eric von Daniken said, wouldn't this story make more sense if we allowed for the possibility of external interventions in our development that gave us these huge leap forwards from time to time? And he wasn't the first to say it. Plato was saying it two and a half thousand years ago. So rediscovering him, rediscovering his teaching in the early church, that this was part of early Christianity was very significant for me. And then when I went on my world tour, listening to ancestral narratives, world mythologies, I started recognizing motifs in those stories that actually are in the Bible. Patterns of human story that are in the Bible that I hadn't fully registered before. So the story of our engineering, our upgrading and our downgrading, dragon narratives, which I'd heard in Wales and China and Greece and mm. Spain and Portugal and Georgia, all around the world, suddenly I realized, hold on, those stories are in the Bible as well. And then when I get to shamanic modalities of contact with spirits, with ancestral spirits, oh my goodness, course that's in the new testament that's in hebrews that's in 1 john 4 but i had to go on this world tour listen to some other people's stories to get that perspective of realizing we have all this in the bible but it's been neglected it's not become core curriculum or even worse than that translation choices have been made to try and hide these other narratives in the judeo-christian tradition why why do you think um given how Elo eloquently and how well you describe um, this way of um, trying to understand our origins. Given that, how come there aren't so aren't many more people like yourself from the church with their YouTube channels and saying these things, or unless there are and they're just they're not they're keeping quiet? Well, I think it's been a taboo in the church for a very long time. I said right at the beginning the idea of a populated universe or of um, our ancestry having been adjusted by ET visitors. It was part of the mainstream conversation at the beginning, but by the time you get to 144 of the common era, those stories are being pushed underground. Orthodoxy is paring down, narrowing down to a much simpler story that uh, the Roman Empire found very useful, a simple worldview with God and the emperor at the top and the bishops and the senators in the middle and the priests and the people at the bottom meekly paying praying and obeying mm -hmm. what the roman empire wanted to anchor was a religion that would give a sort of religious imprimatur to the feudalism of the roman imperial system and if you have a simple monotheistic worldview you can do that but these other texts and these other narratives within the canonical texts and then within the Gnostic texts as well, that speak about other authorities, populated universe, that the traditional stories of God are about one ET entity among many, stories that reveal that 
at a grassroots level, we can all be having contact experiences. We all have access to higher information. Suddenly that becomes rather messy and harder to manage. And I think that the cleaning up of religion and paring it down into this, this feudal shape was something that had been going on for a long time, preceded the Roman Empire. So you look at the history of the formation of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, by the end of that process, you've got this cleanup operation going on of trying to remove everything from plain sight that detracts from a monotheistic worldview. There's a very broad scholarly consensus that the final redaction that was done on the Hebrew scriptures to allow them to take their current shape was one that tried to monotheize all these ancient stories, make it appear that the Bible is a seamless story of Almighty God from beginning to end. And so translation choices were made that airbrushed out these other entities. And I think that was empowering to the Jerusalem temple, to the family of the high priests, and disempowering to other local power sources, power bases, news agencies, loyalties, so on and so forth. So it's really all in the name of central control and power that these other stories mm -hmm. get pushed out of the picture. And it repeats through history. I mean, there are many moments of colonization where if you think about the Catholic forces of Portugal and Spain, for instance, going into Central and South America, mm -hmm. they go in with the intent to delete the narratives that exist there and replace them with the narratives of Christianity to get rid of the other authority structures, the kings, queens, priests, and replace them with the priesthood of the Roman Catholic Church. It was a delete and replace operation. And mm -hmm. colonization always looks like that. And what that often means is that the grassroots indigenous stories, which include stories of paleo contact, um, protocols for activating higher human potential, all that has to be negated and replaced with this monolithic Christian orthodoxy. And the British have done it, the Dutch have done it, mm -hmm. uh, the French have done it in the past, Spanish and Portuguese. The history of colonization is the history of suppression of indigenous narratives. Yeah, and I was going to ask uh, later about whether you thought this all stemmed from the Roman Empire, or do you think it goes back further? It does go back further because you've got that process of monotheizing Judaism uh, that I just mentioned. I mean, if I say Judaism, most people will think, ah, oh, yes, one of the great monotheistic religions of the world. Well, no, it was not. It's been mm -hmm. monotheistic for the last mm, two and a half thousand years. Mm, but prior to that, and overlapping with that, Judaism was polytheistic. Judaism recognized a diversity of advanced beings and powerful entities intersecting with human history, but then called upon its adherents to just go with one of those powerful entities who took the name Yahweh. You've got that going on, and there's a great forgetting of the other entities commanded within Judaism. The Ten Commandments says you mustn't bow down to other beings or work for them or even depict them. Forget they exist, please. Uh, Moses, that's the time of Moses we're looking at there, is succeeded by Joshua. He puts out a call to the people saying, don't work for Achech, the Elohim dragon of Egypt, serve Yahweh, the 
God of Israel. Well, there's a rather interesting counterplay on the names there. Achech in Egypt, Yahweh in Israel. And this is one of those little clues that we're looking at a canon, a world canon of dragon narratives, and we're looking at stories that are fitting into that. Yeah. But they've all been airbrushed over to make them look like God's stories. But that only happened relatively recently. You would go to towns just outside Jerusalem in the 7th century BCE, and you would still find ceremonies recalling paleocontact, that moment when entities came, sat with our ancestors and taught us how to grow crops and turn the crops into food. So that's the Asherah cult that I'm talking about there. King Josiah wanted to get rid of any memory of Asherah, paleocontact and all that in the 7th century BCE. And yet I could go to Brazil in the 1980s and find exactly the same ceremonies going on there where the local people out of indigenous memory, out of West African memory, are wanting to recall the moment of paleo contact when our ancestors were taught agronomy. And we've got Pope John Paul II coming in saying, no, I want to clean this up. I want to get rid of the indigenous memory, get rid of West African memory. Let's just retain the <clears throat> Portuguese Catholic contribution here, which is Christian orthodoxy with no paleo contact in it. And that's an incredible pattern when you think about it. That's two and a half thousand years where the same grassroots knowledge is there, a knowledge of paleo contact, and the same response from the powers is seen, whether it's from King Josiah in Jerusalem, 7th century BCE, or Pope John Paul II in Brazil in the 1980s. They're both trying to get rid of the memories of paleo contact and pare it down mm -hmm. to a neat and tidy Christian worldview. Yeah, I'd like the... Um... The story of the Dogon tribe and, and and their connection to Sirius, the Sirius star system, and how they knew knew more about that star system before our astronomers did in terms of it being a binary star, and and that just speaks volumes to this paleo contact and how how true it is uh, that they're able to get that information. Exactly, the Dogon speak very clearly about paleo contact, about ET interventions, and in their um, emergence as a people group and the fact that they knew in the 1930s that Sirius was a triple star system mm -hmm. decades ahead of the rest of us really throws a spanner in the works if you're wanting to maintain the idea that sophisticated western northern Europeans go in conquer other people's countries and what they're deleting is primitive and ignorant and they're replacing it with sophisticated education. Well, the Dogon story totally gives the lie to that. They were advanced of us mm -hmm. in their astronomical information. Why would mm -hmm. you want to delete and replace that rather than sit at their feet and say, tell us what happened? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the same is true of the pyramids, of course, and how, how they're all over the world and, and how mathematically... I think um, the mathematics behind their, their building, their structure is, is so incredible and just speaks volumes to how more complex whoever built them, uh, they were, you know, architecturally, intellectually. Indeed. So, I mean, you've got incredible structures uh, in their own right. And then you've got how they align with each other, mm -hmm. how they align with other structures around the planet. The alignment of megalithic sites across the Andes is an absolute miracle. If we tried to line up our cities 
in that way across a mountain range so that all the central squares of the central cities are on the same axis, I think we'd struggle to do that today. Mm -hmm. When you realize the ancients were doing that a couple of thousand years ago, you have to, again, realize that the picture of clever us, uh, ignorant mm -hmm. ancestors yeah. is not quite accurate to how life on planet Earth has played yeah. out. It's quite arrogant almost. <laughs> um, it is. So how your views um, going from the sort of the church dogma um, to the kind of more alternative views that we're speaking about now, how has that affected your relationships socially and also within social relationships in the church? Well, um, I would say I've been overwhelmed by how positive a response I've had from the church world and from people of faith mm, around the world. The majority response I get is from people saying, thank you so much for putting this on the table. It's been a taboo for so long, but I've had this experience which relates to ET contact, which I've never been able to talk about or share. I'm not allowed to mention it at church. Thank you. I can talk to you about it. Thank you. We're having a conversation about it. And thank you for inviting people of faith into this conversation. I hear from other people who say, thank you, because I have seen this in the Bible as well, but we're supposed not to notice, so we can't discuss it. I hear from people who've not been able to share personal experiences for decades because the mainstream culture has been one of debunking and ridicule around close encounters and ET contact. But there are some friendships that have gone a little bit quieter uh, since I've been publishing mm -hmm. books in Paleo Contact. And a few colleagues who were a bit closer prior who seem a bit nervous of what I'm writing about. Oh. Okay. And I don't know if they feel nervous of the topic. I know some don't really want to look at it because they are, they are doing work that rests on a particular narrative and they don't want that narrative to fall apart. And uh, there'll be mm. some who say, I just don't have time to do that deconstruction and reconstruction when I'm on the job. And I do find a lot of pastors who come to me and say thank you i've been thinking the same thing do that when they've just retired okay yeah. and suddenly the pressure's off and they've got the freedom to say things out loud that if they said it while in congregational ministry could be really damaging to the life of their church because it would split their congregation mm -hmm. in most churches if the priest stepped forward and started talking about paleo contact saying half our god stories are really stories about aliens half the congregation would say thank you pastor i've thought that for a long time and another half would say you can't preach that here we're an orthodox christian church you're going to have to leave and it would be very very messy that's how polarizing a topic it is and i certainly knew i was taking my life in my hands by publishing in the field of paleo contact and i I did wonder if it might lose me some friends. It's probably lost me a couple, but I remember this is back to the invisible team topic. One particular evening, I was just really weighing up what will be the cost for me and for us as a family if I publish these books, publish this research. Are we going to lose some friends? And then it was just one of these funny 
um, synchronicities, these funny coincidences that a couple of hours after asking that question to the universe, I was listening to somebody being interviewed and out of his mouth came the words, of course, you'll lose friends, but you'll gain thousands of others who'll think you're the bee's knees because of what you're writing and mm -hmm. saying. Yeah. It was as if he was on the other end of the phone talking mm -hmm. to me. Yeah. And uh, what he said is absolutely correct. I have met so many people, made so many friends in this field, and a number of theological colleagues who are more distant have come closer because we're actually on a very similar page. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I can agree that uh, since starting this podcast and finding out more about more of these people, I find that everyone's so welcoming and um it's been some great conversations and it just shows you know the, the caliber of the people that are you know wanting to embody and understand this information are are very warm and welcoming and yeah there's a, you make lots of new friends as you dive deeper down the rabbit hole as you say you do and i think i i enjoy meeting people in this space because most of the people i'm meeting are uh curious Mm -hmm. they are truth seekers and that's the energy we share when we get into our conversations we give each other energy and courage for pursuing white rabbits further and that makes it a positive space for me to operate in from time to time i do get a bit of flack from people who think that i'm a debunker or i'm, I'm desecrating some mm -hmm. sacred tradition there is a bit of that people who feel a bit threatened by what i'm saying but um, that's usually from further afield. That's usually from people I don't know personally, mm. but who are reacting to the title of a video or the title of a book and who may not have read anything I've written. And certainly on YouTube, I find I, I go in the comments every day on the Paul Wallace channel and the fifth kind, and there'll be some people making aggressive points. 90% of the time, I find if I say thank you for your comment, you make an interesting point. The reason I think this is this, 90% of the time, we're the best of friends within a couple of exchanges. It's very rare mm -hmm. that the person is so angry that you can't say, let's look at this another way. Can you see there's another way of seeing this? Yeah, no, I, I agree. And actually, I, I found similarly on in Twitter, which is a very much <laughs> polarizing space, you can still find a degree of friendship with those people that with polarizing views if you approach it you know with calmness and trying to try and meet in the middle to a certain extent yeah um in terms of the the vatican uh you've mentioned about how they've tried to stamp out these alternative narratives for years but i, I must assume and, and actually listening to you earlier there must be also people within the church the vatican that are trying to grow the knowledge of these alternative narratives how, how do you think that split is within the vatican itself well 2009 was an interesting moment because all of a sudden we had a number of leading spokespeople for the curia pushing the conversation forwards about populated universe potential contact so i mentioned Guy Consolmagno, there was also uh, Father Jose Gabriel Funes, who's the director of the Vatican Observatory. We also heard from Monsignor Corrado Balducci, who was the Vatican's senior advisor in paranormal ministry, all pushing the conversation forward. And it was so sudden and from out of the blue and so emphatic that it gave the impression they thought there was going to be a disclosure 
being made and they wanted to get in on the front foot mm -hmm. so that if some other authority said we're in contact then the roman catholic church could say uh, now believers don't you remember we talked about this there's no problem there's mm -hmm. no issue yeah because after that nothing more happened there was no disclosure from another authority mm -hmm. and we never heard from these spokespeople again on the topic in fact if you go and do a google search on those three and look for their quotes on these topics oh it looks like they've all been taken down so i'm glad <laughs> yeah. i found them and put them in escaping from eden for the record so you can see what they did say mm -hmm. so it was almost a an insurance against disclosure rather than act of disclosure i still applaud it because it did invite people to think again and did invite people whether they're roman catholics or or, or anybody to think openly about the possibility of populated universe and, and what the implications might be. Um, so I think there will be people, I would conclude from that within the Roman Catholic Church, within the scholastic world of Roman Catholicism, who uh, share the conclusions I share, but they're not out there at the moment standing at the microphone broadcasting the information mm. um i think they thought something was going to happen and then it didn't we're now in a different moment where we've got oh what what can you say it's not exactly disclosure but there's an acknowledgement of the ufo mm. phenomenon now yeah. by the pentagon yeah and an the, the tic-tac incident in the nimitz case i think that's sort of changed the, that's, changed the that dynamic sparked everything didn't it yeah it mm -hmm. did change the dynamics so we have to thank chris mellon for that who was the former assistant secretary of defense for presidents clinton and george w bush he mm. leaked that footage from the uss nimitz encounter with the tic tac craft in 2004 and then the pentagon i think it was 2019 came forward and authenticated that and said yes that really happened Mm -hmm. And in fact, yes, we have had a unit in place for 70 years studying these encounters and studying materials retrieved from UFO crashes. So that is new because for 72 years, the policy of US government was silence, debunking and ridicule mm -hmm. around the whole UFO phenomenon. Now they affirm it. It's a real thing. We've got materials we're investigating. We've had the Senate briefings, for what they were worth um, last year, and now we've got the congressional hearings of this yeah. year that put it out into the public domain. Doesn't seem to really get a lot of traction among our journalists. So a lot of people are sort of half aware it's going on, but it is still significant that these things are being um, authenticated at that level of yeah. seniority. What did you think of those congressional hearings? Did you think it was a bit of a whitewash or do you think it was a good step forward? I, I hear 50-50 on the debate on the UFO world. <laughs> um, to be honest, after the Senate briefings of last year, I haven't paid very much attention to the congressional hearings because I could see <laughs> where, mm. where things were headed, mm. that it would be pretty anemic. I mean, the, the Senate briefings, the paper that was presented by the Pentagon, nine pages, mm -hmm. nine sheets of A4, two of which were an appendix. This is 70 years of data, is it? From mm -hmm. their unit that investigates UFO crashes, no reference to 70 years of data. 
where are the other agencies that have been involved? Why was it only um, encounters reported by US defense? Why not other encounters? Why only since 2004, the year of the, uh, the Nimitz encounter? Why was the remit so narrow? Um, well, because there's a push-pull, you, you asked about the mix of um, opinion in places of power. I think at the Pentagon, you have people who want more disclosure and you've got other people who want less. Mm -hmm. So there's always a push-pull. The push was we had Senate briefings and a paper and the pull was we're only gonna include this, this uh, tiny wad of information. Yeah. And yet even within that paper, I would note, there were some interesting acknowledgements that paper, the uh, uh, what was it, the preliminary assessment paper of UAPs, acknowledged that US defense operations are impeded on average once every six weeks by UFO activity. <laughs> and they've maintained that rate of encounters over the last 17 years. But that's a lot of UFO encounters that suddenly mm -hmm. we've just been told about just in that narrow window of time. And then the report goes on to say there is zero evidence that these UFOs or UAPs are the covert ops of forces at home or of foreign powers, zero evidence. So we, in other words, we really don't know where this tech has come from and then join the dots with the work of ATIP and well, we're studying who made them out of Earth's atmosphere mm -hmm. in zero G and you join the dots and there's quite a lot of information there, but presented in a very anemic way so that it can almost fly below the radar. And I think the congressional hearings are going in a similar way. Yeah. Um, in 2000 and in 2020, Hayim Eshed said, a galactic federation has been waiting for humans to reach a stage where we will understand what space and spaceships are. What do you think he meant by that? I think he was using contemporary language for what our ancestors have been saying for thousands of years. When Amos Shedd, who was the Brigadier General, who for 27 years was the Chief of Space Security for Israel. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's his job to know these things. He says on the basis of his information, his understanding, we are in contact with an intergalactic federation. That is just modern language for the Sky Council that you'll find in Greek legend, in the Bible, in the Sumerian stories. And the Sky Council of the Bible is interesting because it reveals a diversity of non-human advanced uh, races sitting in some kind of a council because they've had to come to some kind of an arrangement and agreement of how they're going to engage mm -hmm. with Project Humanity and Project Earth. So it's an old, old story that Hayamashed is repeating. Our ancestors have been telling us this for thousands of years. And for that reason, I take what he says seriously. And he's one of a number of very authoritative people to step forward and say things like this. He's mm -hmm. saying what Ed Mitchell said for decades. He campaigned for the US government to put somebody forward and say what Hayamashed said, because he was so convinced that covert government in the States is in contact and has been in contact for decades. Paul Hellier, the late Paul Hellier, who was uh, formerly Minister of Defense for Canada, mm -hmm. said exactly the same thing. 
we had Alan Juillet, the former chief of French intelligence, affirming the work of ATIP, saying, yes, they are studying UFOs. They are studying materials retrieved from factions who are in contact with us. So this is somewhat new. A decade ago, we did hear from Dmitry Medvedev, who at the time was the Russian prime minister, and he talked about a large number of spacefaring civilizations that we are already in contact with at a covert government level. He really was ahead of the game. <laughs> he was caught yeah. on camera talking about this, and you can probably still find it on YouTube. People said, oh, it must have been a joke. You watch yourself. You mm -hmm. tell me if you think he's joking. He wasn't then debunked by his president. President Putin didn't come forward and say, my colleague was incapacitated, had one too many vodkas, nothing like that. And so there's been a big shift in the last few years of more and more authoritative figures stepping forward and talking about contact, talking about multiple civilizations being in contact with us. And that is something I haven't seen in my lifetime before. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure you're aware of the, uh, the story about Eisenhower when he met with extraterrestrials. Um, uh, and do you, do you believe that this, the supposed story that the MJ-12, this, this covert group, went behind his back and signed an agreement with uh, some nefarious ETs and put us down this more negative trajectory? Well, I'd say this. The stories about uh, the president's meeting with representatives of ET factions come from sources close to President Eisenhower. They come from the family itself. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's pretty close. Mm -hmm. I think you have to take that seriously. And then when you register that the president of the US is I think there are 17 layers of uh, classification and um, secrecy above the security clearance of the president. Right, yeah. Well, that makes it uh, not too difficult to think that if there was a presidential conversation, then there would be a covert government conversation going on as well that even the president might not know anything about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's on a need to know basis, of course. Of course, I, I think what, what's going on behind the scenes, this covert, this secret government is, uh, is, is huge, but just <laughs> largely unknown for the moment. And uh, hopefully one day we'll, we'll be able to explore it and understand it more. And by the way, uh, just in case uh, anybody listening didn't know that the uh, president of the US is so low down in the pecking order of classified information, we did have a clue to that. Uh, a few years ago when uh, President Clinton said that he had asked for a uh, full and frank total disclosure conversation from intelligence on the question of ET contact, and he said he was told no. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's uh, Hillary Clinton as well and John Podesta. I think they were also... Hillary Clinton, yeah. yes. I mean, it's on public record. We can go and see the request that Hillary Clinton was making because she was wanting to do her own research, find out what was what. And again, no information forthcoming. So if the presidents can't be told or the president's spouses can't be told, and she, she had an office as well, didn't she? Mm -hmm. yeah. Then what hope is there of you and me being told. Exactly. That's yeah. why I think it's a, a fool's errand to sit and wait for the president of the United States of America to step forward and say, my fellow Americans, I got something I want to tell you. I don't <laughs> think that's going to happen. 
But I do think that if we listen to ancestral story, if we sit down with our friends and families and ask a question like, have you ever experienced anything you couldn't explain? As we pool our own experiences and stories, a picture begins to emerge. Mm -hmm. And it's a picture that reveals that on this planet and in our corner of the cosmos, we're not alone. Yeah. Um, have you, I don't know if you've read the book Gardens of Eden by William Bramley. It's a great book. I'd recommend it to anyone listening, but it talks about um, the history of humans on Earth as, as being managed by what he calls custodians. And yes. um, it's, it's very much links to what, what your books uh, talk about. I just wondered what, what you thought about our history being orchestrated, managed, controlled by custodians, if we can call them, if they're ET, ET and human uh, in a way, versus random. To what extent is our history has just been just random events? <laughs> well, uh, random, mm, I don't think so, because you can see patterns. Yeah. William Bramley, I'm certainly aware of, but the reason I haven't read William Bramley is the, the same reason I haven't read Zechariah Sitchin, which people often mm -hmm. ask me. And it's because I was quite a way through my research path to producing Escaping from Eden, the first in the Eden series, when I discovered those names. I'd never heard of those gentlemen before. And I thought, oh, okay, I'm not the first person to join these dots and think these things. Should I stop my research and writing, read up everything William Bradley, Bramley said, read up everything Zechariah Sitchin said, and then carry on? And I thought, no, I'm not going to do that because I don't think that's interesting. I don't want to write a he said, she said kind of book. I'm going to follow the data that's presented itself to me from my background, from my background mm -hmm. in hermeneutics for my background in the history of religious thought i'm going to follow the data i have follow my logic and then if my conclusions overlap with sitchin and bramley suddenly that's interesting that's far more interesting to the reader if there's an overlap then that kind of calls attention to what we're saying rather than me saying bramley said this sitchin said this i think this well who, who cares who cares what i think it's more interesting to follow the data, draw conclusions, and then realize, oh, different writers from different start points have followed their research path, and it's all pointing to something very, very similar. As to the credibility of the idea, I think the more um, cultures you hear telling ancient story that repeats the idea that there's a non-human layer to our history and a non-human layer to the governance of Project Earth, the more seriously you take it mm -hmm. because the, the details that correlate from culture to culture are just so unlikely and so fascinating. And there are clues that what you're not looking at is a story that's gone around the world in Chinese whispers and altered a bit. It's not a book that's gone around the world and been translated into different languages. The clues in the ancestral narratives point to different cultures having seen and heard the same things. Mm -hmm. And then they use their own language, their own metaphor to curate the memory of what was seen and heard. So I found plenty of clues that you're looking at visual memory and auditory memory. Mm -hmm. So 
I give the idea a lot of credence. It's not new, it's thousands of years old. And one very interesting witness in this great story is a fellow called Robert Kirk, who in the 1600s was the Presbyterian minister for Aberfoyle in Scotland. Now, okay. Presbyterian minister, Aberfoyle, Scotland, means we're looking at a very conservative person, mm -hmm. very orthodox, very evangelical, very reformed, very tight world of Christian orthodoxy. But when he went to his parish, and listened to the people who lived there and the story of the families going back through the generations, he realized there was an experience in this part of the world that related to contact with non-human entities. And he wrote a book called The Secret Commonwealth because he drew the conclusion that there is and always has been a non-human layer to the governance of planet Earth that is in contact at a covert government level. And he published this. Can you imagine doing that, writing material like that from his vantage point? But he did, it was published, and it's in print all these years later. And I think he was absolutely right. I think what he said was accurate. You can go to Africa, West Africa, Southern Africa, the Caribbean, the Philippines, India, Greece, the whole of Europe, the um, Nordic countries, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, mm -hmm. and the same stories repeat of contact, governance, abduction, hybridization, all the kinds of things that we might hear today and think this is a 21st century phenomenon. These are stories I might expect to read in the National Enquirer. Someone presumably got $50 for this story. No, no, no. This is ancient global story. This is the folkloric memory of the human race all around the planet. Yeah. And when you um, can put aside your, the belief systems that you're told from an early age and just look out into the cosmos, cosmos and see how big it is and how vast and all the stars and galaxies, it seems hard to even conceive the idea that this is the only <laughs> rock that has life. And if it, even if there is other life that it hasn't, found its way over here at some point in the past. It, it seems to make more sense to me now, um, despite the earlier um, belief systems that I've been told that, uh, that, that, we're, that we're alone. Um, does Arthur C. Clarke, was he, was he said that uh, we're either alone in the universe or we're not, and both are equally <laughs> apprehensive. I can't remember the exact quote, but... Uh, yeah. Equally terrifying, <laughs> equally I think terrifying. he said. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yes and no. I sort of half agree with Arthur C. Clarke. Being alone is terrifying, but uh, having company, that's a more mixed story. Mm, yeah. And ancestral, nori, uh, ancestral narrative suggests that there's actually a spectrum of life in the cosmos, and our intersection with it represents a spectrum of experiences, some terrifying, some traumatizing many of the notes that repeat from culture to culture in their stories of origins are stories of trauma but then you go to their stories of first contact and it's almost invariably benevolent contact mm -hmm. beings who've come from particular regions of space and the regions of space that get repeated around the world are the pleiades and sirius and orion and pleiades in particular seem to be associated with stories of beautiful beings who came and sat with our ancestors, nurtured us as the human race in the deep past, 
taught us how to live in balance with the planet and in a more than subsistence way, taught us how to cultivate crops, taught us how to build cities, so on and so forth. So first contact, according to our ancestors, is not terrifying. It was wonderful. Uh, it was a treasured time and it was benevolent contact. Mm -hmm. uh, I've heard some great chats with yourself and Matt LaCroix on uh, your channel, and he's someone who actually I listened to in 2020 and, and probably was one of the first people I heard that actually told me about things like the book of um, the Epic of Gilgamesh, the book of Enoch and these things. Um, and uh, he talks a lot about Eagle versus Snake or Enki versus en Enhill. I wanted to wonder if you could give your side, your view on, on this, this kind of uh, this story of the, the, the two opposing forces. Yes, it's fascinating. Um, for years, I had preached through the Bible and found a few anomalies. And one of those anomalies occurs in Genesis 3, which Christians refer to as the story of the fall. This is Adam and Eve in the garden. Eve eats the apple, gives it to Adam, and then there are consequences. So mm -hmm. a lot of people are familiar with that story. But the way it's translated at the moment it's a little odd. First of all, a child would say, hang on, serpent in the garden. Why did God make the serpent? Who was the serpent? What kind of entity was he? Because he wasn't a snake, certainly not at the beginning of the story. How come he could speak? So on and so forth. Mm -hmm. He's appeared from out of the blue. Couldn't God see something was going to go wrong? And then how come it's the snake who wants to improve the quality of life for the human beings? wants the human beings to be more conscious, more intelligent. And it's God, the Yahweh character, who wants to keep human beings so ignorant they don't even know they're naked. He wants humans kept down at an animal level. How is it that the serpent is for human progress and God is against it? So this is all very odd. And then you've got the death penalty for eating a piece of fruit. What? Mm -hmm. That doesn't make sense. And then God lies and says, you'll die if you eat that fruit. And it turns out, no, they won't die. What on earth is going on there? It doesn't make sense. It's not quite coherent. Every preacher knows this when they try and preach through it. Well, through my research and translation work, I realize that the snake does get an introduction. I shouldn't say snake, serpent does get an introduction yeah. because when you read the root meanings of words like Elohim in the Hebrew text, it means that from the beginning of chapter one, you've been introduced to a plurality of advanced beings on planet Earth intersecting with the mm -hmm. human story. Yeah. And the serpent is just one of those advanced beings. And the God character is just another of those advanced beings. As soon as you start reading the source narratives, the Sumerian stories, it suddenly becomes as clear as day. Genesis 3 is the Bible's version of the conflict between Enlil and Enki. Enki is the serpent who is in charge of product humanity and wants to upgrade the human beings. Enlil is his younger brother who is actually of a higher rank and is governing over this region of space and is saying, we don't want an advanced Homo sapiens on planet Earth. Thank you very much. We don't need them that mm -hmm. smart. They apparently just needed a workforce, which echoes in other narratives around the world. So this is rather intriguing that you've got this summary. I think 
this is a piece of the puzzle that a lot of my um, readers who come from a faith background, it's, it's a red pill moment and it's a wrestle and sometimes it's a bit of a hurdle for them to get across because the Genesis translation of the Enlil Enki conflict has so distorted the original as to produce a god who is anti-human and that anti-human behavior from the god character repeats all through the hebrew scriptures because it's a mistranslation because this anti-human behavior had nothing to do with god but mm -hmm. everything to do with enlil keeping his older brother in check and saying you keep a lid on this project humanity don't you get too close to them. We don't need them any smarter. We just need them smart enough to work for us. And okay. the Enlil Enki conflict repeats in the Mesoamerican telling in the Popol Vuh, repeats in the epic story from out of Nigeria, repeats in the struggle of Zeus and Prometheus in the mm -hmm. Greek narratives. All around the planet, the human race has remembered this trauma we went through when we went from being a slave species to being a fertile, intelligent species able to thrive and develop as a civilization. And there was some big conflict around that that so many cultures have remembered and put into their ancestral story. So do you see um, the story as one of good versus evil or do you, do you see it differently? Well, Good versus evil has a certain meaning um, to one person and a different meaning to yeah, another person. Sure. And I think our concepts of good and evil have been very distorted through the ages because we have translated Elohim stories as God stories. It's meant that we've had to justify brutal behaviors in the name of God. So we've got a genociding God, a xenophobic God. And if you have to worship a genocide in God, you have to justify genocide. If you have to worship a xenophobic God, you have to justify xenophobia. And so that's distorted our good and evil concepts. So when I look at these ancient experiences, I'm more inclined to think in terms of pro-human, anti-human, and use that kind of language. I mentioned earlier uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Book of Enoch. And I see these are very important in, when researching paleo contact. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about their significance? Well, Gilgamesh is a fascinating figure because he fits in this pattern of ancient story where in the deep past, human beings were governed by non-human entities, by advanced beings from somewhere else. And then there's a pivot point where there's a handover and then you have human governance for human society. So that's the pattern in the Hebrew scriptures. You start off with Elohim governing over human colonies, and then uh, the people of uh, Israel say, no, we've had enough of this. We don't want to be governed by this Yahweh entity anymore. We want a human king. And so it pivots from Yahweh to King Saul, and then it goes on to King David, and you've got the Davidic monarchy. That pivot is there in Egyptian story as well. It's there in ancient Sumerian story. And the pivot king in the Sumerian story is Gilgamesh, who is a hybrid person. He's um, two thirds human, I think one third ET. Although big picture is we're all hybrids. He had mm -hmm. a bit more ET in the mix than the rest of us. 
What's intriguing about the Gilgamesh story is that in 2003, we had the opportunity, potentially, to test the historicity of that claim, because it's all but certain we discovered the sarcophagus of King Gilgamesh, Jörg Fassbinder, mm -hmm. went in with a team, 2003, to examine that site within less than a fortnight of the Allied forces going into Iraq. He was so excited, he went on the BBC, he said, we're 99% certain this is the sarcophagus of Gilgamesh, the hero of the world's oldest story, this hybrid being. We're going to test him, we're going to find out what's what, and then we never heard anything about mm -hmm. it again. Yeah. <laughs> Except that five years later, Poor Jörg Fassbinder turns up mournfully in a French journal and says, oh, we decided not to investigate any further. We buried the site for its protection. <laughs> really? I mean, how likely is that? That's the most significant archaeological find in known human history. You're going to decide not to investigate further. Isn't it more likely they wanted to investigate in private because the implications of the outcome of that research was so enormous. Isn't it more likely they investigated in private and discovered something they didn't want to talk about? Yeah. Uh, when I look back on um, the Iraq war you, you, that you mentioned, the, uh, at first I thought I wasn't pro-war, but I did believe the stories around Saddam Hussein as a despotic tyrant and needed to be removed. and. Um, as much as that might, there may be some truth to that. As things have gone on, I've started to think maybe, okay, there may be a, uh, a reason to go in for, for money, for oil, for get a contract, as we've seen all around the world. And now more recently, um, the story seems to unfold that maybe the real reason to go in was, as you said, to for archaeological discoveries and to find out more about Gilgamesh. And is it Eridu? Is that, is that where Iraq? Yes, that's yeah. right. Um, yeah for archaeological reasons and for reasons of trying to sequester ancient technology. Now, I say that quite boldly because these are not stories that have emerged from conspiracy theorists sitting in their armchairs, coming up with ideas about what Iraq might have been about. These are the stories that come from the servicemen who are in Iraq. This is where these stories come from, from people who went in and risked their lives and risk the lives of their men, thinking it was for weapons of mass destruction, thinking it was to save the mm -hmm. Kurds, thinking it was to affect regime change. And then they go in and find their unit is on an archaeological mission. Their unit is to get eyes on and hands on particular technology that appears to have been there for thousands of years. And so I've had people come to me who are veterans of that war, who will ask a question like, What's so significant about that part of the world? What is the credibility of ancient portal and Stargate technology? Specifically, that's what they ask mm. because of what they saw or what their colleagues have reported to them. And I have not been there. I've not been hands on. I've not been eyes on. But what I can say when veterans of war ask me those questions is that if you wanted to find an ancient portal technology or an ancient Stargate technology, then our ancient narratives say you need to be in Iraq. The Sumerian narratives say that's where you would find one. The biblical narrative of Genesis 11 says 
that's where you would find one. So I can say that according to our deep history, there's a lot of credibility to that claim. And then scientifically, these things are actively studied. NASA has spent millions and millions of dollars in its advanced propulsion unit analyzing wormholes, <laughs> portals, yeah. and the technology for creating them. 30 years ago, NASA was already asking the question, can we fly a craft into one of the portals that we've already yeah. observed? Is that an island well, Rosen Bridge? Well, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and that's one model of what a wormhole and a portal might be. If NASA was asking that question 30 years ago, well, what have they found in the years since? Yeah. Yes, it's, it's fascinating. And I'm looking forward to finding out more in the, in the coming days. Uh, it's been a, a great conversation. I wonder if you could um, end by telling a bit more now that you've finished the Eden series, or maybe, maybe you've got more in you, but what, what kind of uh, future projects are you working on? How can people find out more about you? Well, there will be more coming in the Eden series. These first three do really form a trilogy, Escaping from Eden, The Scars of Eden and Echoes of Eden do go together and they kind of give a 360 degree view of the implications mm -hmm. of paleo contact. I am writing more in the Eden series though that goes back to the ancient texts, including the texts of the Bible and asked, why were these stories create, curated? What were our ancestors trying to teach us in these ancient texts? What was the Bible about before it became a book about God? And what was it trying to teach our ancestors? And these are secrets not only to do with the past, but our present and our future, very relevant to how we navigate the period of history we're in right now. And, and uh, do you want to say a bit more about how people can find you? I think we've already mentioned oh, sure. the channels. Yes. If you go to Amazon and Kindle, you will find Escaping from Eden, The Scars of Eden, Echoes of Eden. You, you can find those books on other bookselling platforms as well, Barnes & Noble, um, High Book Depository, wherever books are sold, <laughs> you should find them. Get hold of your copies. And if you want to get in conversation with me about what you read there, I'm always in the comments of The Fifth Kind on YouTube and the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube. If you want to do some coaching with me, you can come to paulanthonywallace.com. That's Anthony with an H, Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S, paulanthonywallace.com. And we can meet there and have a conversation. Well, thank you very much. And hopefully we'll uh, speak again another time. Thanks, Joe. It's been a pleasure.